Now, the rule in showbiz is never work with children or animals, and the rule as a preacher is never work with children, animals, or USB sticks. So uh, I do hope that the... There we are. There is actually something there. Let's hope that it's that it all makes sense. Thank you again for your uh, gracious invitation to share with you in God's Word this evening. And uh, as I indicated this morning, we're going to uh, do the sequel to John chapter 20, which we looked at this morning, and we're going to cover John chapter 21 uh, tonight. This morning, the focus was on Thomas, often known as Doubting Thomas. Tonight, of course, the focus is on Peter. And uh, we're going to look at the idea of restoration. Before we do that, let's read John chapter 21 together. This is God's word. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the brothers that the disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And this is the word of the Lord. <coughs> Thanks be to God. Well now, I, I don't know whether you've read or seen the great Tolkien trilogy, Lord of the Rings. A monumental masterpiece of literature and now, of course, of cinema. The story of triumph of good over evil, of weakness triumphing over power. And the third book, the third movie, ends with the hero Sam Ganji simply yet eloquently saying, well, I'm back. All the effort, all the battles, all the losses in Lord of the Rings didn't simply return a king to his kingdom, but it returned ordinary, decent people to their simple, peaceful lives. A perfect ending to the book as far as narrative structure is concerned, but not quite the end of the story. Not widely known, Tolkien wrote a sequel to Lord of the Rings, an epilogue called The End of the Third Age. And in it, he describes what happened next to all of the characters that we came to know in the main movies. Now, you didn't come here this evening to hear about Lord of the Rings. But what Tolkien does in his masterpiece is exactly the same as John does in his gospel. It's exactly what John does in chapter 21. The structure of John's narrative has reached a natural conclusion at the end of chapter 20. The reason he wrote his gospel has been established. And he's got to that great monumental peak that we saw this morning. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe. You are my Lord and my God. Jesus is the Son of God. And those who believe in him receive life in his name. What a great way to end the story. What a great way to end the gospel. But John doesn't end there. What happened next? The risen Lord Jesus has appeared to Thomas and he has helped Thomas believe. So we know that there is hope for all who doubt, as we saw this morning. 
But is there hope for those who deny? Those who confess Jesus as Lord one moment and then in some way deny him the next. Now consistent with his purpose in writing the gospel, which is the lens through which we must read everything in John, I have written this that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that through believing in him you may have life in his name. That's the the reason John wrote the gospel. That's the lens through which we must interpret the whole of the gospel. John now writes this emotionally charged epilogue to show us how Jesus restores believers who have failed to believe and helps them believe again. And so the first step on this road to recovery, this road to restoration, is recognition. And it begins with a miracle. Do you notice there in verses 1 to 8, we read them together. The epilogue begins with ordinary, decent people returning to their simple, peaceful lives. Seven disciples, fishing. The public ministry of Jesus is over. They had no idea what was going to happen next. None. So they went back to work. Now, there has been loads written on the rights and wrongs of whether they should have gone back to work or not. And what that was all about. And the simple answer to all of that from the text is we don't know whether they were doing the right thing or the wrong thing. The text doesn't tell us. It just tells us They went back to what they knew. They went back to fishing. They went back to earn a living. Not a bad thing to do, really. Now, we don't know the reason why they went back. But we do know the outcome. They caught nothing. Their efforts on that first occasion were fruitless. Now, notice... From the text that it wasn't Jesus' instruction that made them recognize him. Jesus appears on the shore and calls out to them. Probably about 50 to 100 meters out in the the lake. But it wasn't his instruction that made made them recognize him. Because Jesus shouts, have you got any fish? And they shout, no. Try the other side. It wasn't Jesus' voice on this occasion through which they recognised him. No, it was deeper than that. It was more emotional than that. It was the miracle of the great catch. Because as they put their nets on the other side, they haul in a great catch. Now what's important here is to see what Jesus is doing with the disciples. Particularly what he's doing with Peter. Because this epilogue is is a story, is John's story of Peter's recovery. And in Peter's journey of recovery, this is a significant moment. Now the significance wasn't in the fact that the net didn't break. There's been lots written about that as well. Nor that there were 153 fish. People have had a field day on all of that. The text doesn't tell us any of that detail. And anything beyond what the text says is pure speculation. What Jesus is doing here, he's taking Peter back to the beginning of his journey. Let's go back to Luke chapter 5, just for a second, 
If you can flick back in your Bible, it will have two effects. One, you'll be able to check out what I'm saying. It's an encouragement to me and also it will help keep you awake at the end of a long Sunday. So chapter 5 of Luke verse 4. Jesus has been, this is right back at the beginning when the disciples were being called. Jesus is standing by the lake with the people crowding around to listen to the word of God. He gets into one of the boats and he teaches from the boat. And then in verse 4 we pick up the narrative. Luke's story. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. What does Peter say? Master, we've worked hard all night and have caught nothing. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. So they let down the nets, and when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. The moment, if you want to put it this way, of Peter's conversion, Right here, when he recognised who Jesus was and who he was, he was a sinful man. He was capable of great sinful behaviour. But he'd forgotten that, really, hadn't he? He'd forgotten what he was capable of and thought now that he was only capable of greatness. Lord, other people might turn away from you. Other people might let you down. But see me, Lord. I'll die for you. Well, we know that that didn't happen, at least not at this point. And instead of dying for Jesus, he denied Jesus in front of a servant girl there in the courtyard. So Jesus is taking Peter right back to the beginning of his journey because the disciples had seen this miracle before. The day they were first called, the day they left everything to follow Jesus. And John recognises the pattern of behaviour. He's been here before. His senses are stirred. He's taken right back there. It's the Lord, says John. And Peter recognises that that's the case. And he's out in the boat in an instant, away to meet him. And this is the first step, do you notice, along the road to recovery from a spiritual meltdown. A return to where it all began. It's where it always begins when it's gone wrong. Let's get back to the beginning. A return to where we first met the Lord. To remember what, what happened that day. To remember how we felt that day. To remember like Peter that at that point we recognised sin in our lives. We recognised we needed a saviour. We recognised who Jesus was. That he was the son of God. That he was our saviour. And we cried out to him. For salvation. So I want to say to you this evening. In your denial of Jesus. Whatever that looks like tonight. However that's manifesting itself in your life. What memory now is he stirring in your mind. Of the first miracle he worked in your life. That hour you first believed. That day you first came to him. Can you remember? Do you remember it? Do you remember it now? Do you remember what drew you there? What drove you there? Do you remember how, how, how much need of him you felt at that moment? 
How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed, wrote John Newton in his great hymn, Amazing Grace. And the problem for us, you see, friends, is that we forget our need of God's grace and think we can somehow do better on our own. And we fail him constantly as a result. And we deny our relationship with him regularly. And what will help us be restored to our fruitful lives, those early days of Christian belief, when we were on fire for God, when we would do anything for him, when we would witness and share and we didn't mind who knew what we stood for now. The only way we can get back to that is to get back to how we felt and what drove us there in the first place. Do you see? And so we have the miracle as the first point of recognition. But then the second thing that Jesus does, you see, is he doesn't just do a miracle here. He prepares a meal, a shared feast. And we have that recorded by John in verses 9 to 14. Now, it was so obviously the Lord Jesus that the disciples didn't dare ask him to confirm, is it really you? John is showing us here that it was taking the disciples time to get used to the fact that Jesus really was alive. You know, it's easy enough for us to look back and, 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 and give them such a hard time because they couldn't get it. But dead men don't live. They don't. People do not come back from the dead. Jesus did. And it was a struggle, constant struggle in these early days for the disciples to recognise and to, 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 to really be sure of that. And so here's Jesus appearing to them again and, and, and no one dare say, is it really you, Lord? Because they knew, says John, it was the Lord. They knew it was the Lord. And sharing a meal is frequently a place where meaningful conversations take place. At least it is in our house. Uh, my wife has always been non-negotiable on this issue. Our children are pretty much nearly left home now. But as we grew up as a family, the one thing that my wife was insistent on was that we sat at the table for our meals. No devices. No distractions. And guess what? We talked. <laughs> Remember those days. Meals are important. They are frequently used in the Bible as a means by which God speaks to his people and by which his people share with one another. And, and meaningful conversations take place around the, the dinner table, at least they do in, in our house. But this wasn't a TV dinner, this was a beach barbecue. Hosted by the risen Lord Jesus with the single purpose of having a difficult conversation with Peter. And somehow difficult conversations are made slightly easier when there's some food and drink to share. Especially if you're a guy and you're facing the same direction, you know, in a car. That's a good place to have a conversation with a, 
a fellow brother, facing the same direction. How are you doing? Okay. You know that kind of thing? Intimate, meaningful conversations. Here, Jesus brings Peter into a place where he can have a conversation like that. And Jesus has already revealed himself through a meal before. Do you remember? You remember the, the two disciples on Resurrection Sunday on the, on the way to Emmaus? You remember they were upset and distraught and devastated about everything that had happened to their great leader? And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, draws near to them and he listens in on their conversation and he joins in their conversation and he joins them so much that they said, we want to hear the end of this story. Would you want to come in for your dinner? So, of course, he did. He joined them for a meal. And we know what happened. As he broke the bread, because a Jewish man in those days would have taken the bread and lifted it up and given thanks. Thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, for all that you have given us. And the, the marks in his hands would have been visible. And he was recognized through that meal. And here, Jesus uses a meal again to help disciples believe. Cleopas and his, and his friend believed as they shared that first meal with Jesus. And here, Peter is caused to believe again as he shares another meal with Jesus. And you know what, friends? It's no accident that the Lord Jesus left us a meal by which to remember him and to meet him and to hear him speak to us. When we meet to eat and drink together in order to recognize him again and to believe again, as it were, to constantly believe, to be reminded, to be recalibrated, because we are so quick to forget and so quick to prioritize other things and other people in our lives. And so we have the communion meal, the Eucharist, the breaking of bread, whatever you want to call it. We have a meal by which we remember the Lord Jesus and by which he reveals himself to us again. And on our road to recovery, on our road to believing again, it's important for us to, to eat and drink with Jesus in a shared feast. We saw this morning about the dangers of, of cutting ourselves off from the people of God. And so it's equally dangerous to cut ourselves off from the, the meal that he has prepared for us. Because it's a means of grace in our lives to eat and drink with Jesus in a shared feast prepared by him. And that's what he does for Peter here, to help Peter believe again. And so there was recognition. But there was also restoration. And I want to notice with you a couple of things about the way Jesus restores Peter specifically. The first thing I want you to notice is how exact and precise Jesus was in this process. And we have that in verses 15 to 17, where we get that repetitive three times over questioning. And it does seem a bit excessive, doesn't it? You know, why does Jesus have to ask three times? And why does he ask the same thing three times? And why does he give pretty much the same instruction three times? The significance that Jesus uh, there is no significance, rather, in the word Jesus uses for love here. Do you love me? There's been a lot of, um, a lot of, of, of misunderstanding around that and a lot of ink spilt on that one too. 
But there's no significance in the word Jesus uses for love. The significance here is in the fact that Jesus repeats the question three times. This is Jesus. He already knows the answer. He's not asking for reassurance the way I and you, possibly if you're being honest guys, ask your wife from time to time in a rather needy voice. Do you love me? And, and she'll peer over the glasses as she's reading the book or the paper and say, of course I love you. Yeah, but do you really love me? You know, that kind of needy request. Because we're so lacking in assurance and confidence that we, we have to be reassured because we're so needy. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't needy. He doesn't need the affirmation of Peter. Do you love me? I, I need your love. That's not what's going on here. He's not insecure in any way. He asks Peter three times for a reason, and Peter knows it. Do you notice in verse 17, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? Now, the exact nature of Jesus' approach here is massively important in how failed people experience restoration. Remember, Peter has already shown remorse over what he did. He denied that he knew Jesus three times. And Jesus looked at him across the courtyard. And do you remember what, uh, what happened at that point when their eyes met? Peter broke his heart. He went out, the Bible says, and wept bitterly. So he's been remorseful. He's broken his heart. There have been tears. But there hasn't been restoration. Because the root cause of Peter's denial needs to be dealt with. We saw this morning about the root cause of Thomas's unbelief. And here we have the root cause analysis of Peter's denial. And the root cause analysis of Peter's denial is recorded in Luke 22, 24. A dispute arose among them as to which was to be considered the greatest. That was the root cause of Peter's problem. Who is going to be number one? You see, it had all become about them. It had all become about the disciples. Specifically, it had all become about Peter. I am ready to go with you to prison and to death, Lord. So his three sworn denial that he even knows Jesus within 12 hours of telling Jesus that he would be ready to go to prison and to death represents a catastrophic public meltdown for a wannabe church leader. Someone who saw himself as the natural born leader of the disciples. Someone who saw himself as the greatest disciple at that point. Could you trust this person with public gospel ministry in a hostile environment? Could you? Well, he caved in in a hostile environment when a wee lassie said, I think your voice sounds like you come from Galilee. Oh, no, 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 not me. You've got the wrong person. That's me just putting on a voice. You couldn't trust a person like that with public gospel ministry in a hostile environment. And think what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's about to go back to heaven. He's about to commission his disciples to take this gospel into the whole world. He's going to have to depend on these people to lead and take that word forward. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be persecution. They're going to be hounded to death. Most of these men. 
Peter at this point isn't ready for that. He needs to be restored. He needs this process of recovery. So Jesus is specific. He's precise in his approach. There were three episodes of failure. Three episodes of denial. So there are three challenges of loyalty. And when believers fail, and particularly friends, when leaders fail, and they do, remorse is not enough. There will be tears in the early days of disclosure when failure surfaces. There will be regret. There will be remorse. That's not enough for a return to public ministry. There has to be a deep work of restoration. And there has to be an exact confrontation of the issues. Every single episode needs to be dealt with fully. Do you see? Not excessively. Jesus didn't ask him five times. He asked him three times because there were three episodes of failure. So each episode of failure had to be fully confronted and fully dealt with by the Lord Jesus. So there had to be proper restoration. There had to be more than remorse. There had to be a broken heart. And so this is a very emotional moment here. Not just an exact restoration, but an emotional restoration. Do you love me? Restoration, you see, is only achieved if it goes to the root of the problem. And what is the root of the problem when believers and leaders fail, when Peter failed? What was the root of the problem? The problem was love for Christ. Peter loved himself more than he loved Christ. He was more obsessed with himself and his own position and the fact that he was great and he would never do anything that would compromise the work of Jesus. The root of the problem is love for Christ himself and restoration, restoration for a fallen and broken believer and leader is only achieved if restoration to the Lord himself is achieved. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you see? A single reminder of all three denials won't work. You denied me three times, Peter. That showed me that you don't love me. Do you love me now? Do you see? Three specific questions. It didn't land hard enough if Jesus only asked him once. Peter, John tells us, was hurt. Now we shrink back from this in dealing with fallen and failing people, don't we? When people have made mistakes in our culture, we're kind of frightened that we might hurt them if we use some kind of discipline or if we, if we, if we make them confront things properly. But we're scared that we might hurt them. And in hurting them, we might drive them away in some way. Do you notice that Jesus didn't stop until Peter felt the pain? Peter was hurt. We must allow the Lord to hurt us before he can heal us. Do you see? Often we're so concerned about hurting a person who's already in despair that we miss the point. 
Peter had to reach a point where he believed and confessed finally and fully that Jesus was God and he, Peter, wasn't. That Jesus was in charge and he, Peter, wasn't. And that is a painful place in our lives. That will hurt us. For God to bring each one of us to a point where we are prepared to relinquish control over all of our lives, we will hurt. God will put his finger, and he may be doing that right now in your life as we, as we listen to his word. He'll put a finger on things in your life which are, are destructive in your life, which are showing that you love these things more than you love him. And he will press on them until it hurts. Do you love me more than that? Do you love me more than these? It's a painful place. Because we love control. We love to be God in our own lives, you see. But we will never experience true restoration until we get to a point in our pain where we are caused to cry out to the Lord, as Peter does here, Lord, you know everything, not me. Do you see? You know everything. You alone know everything. You are God. And I'm not. And you know that I love you. Now, Peter thought he knew himself. I'll do this and I'll never do that. But Jesus alone knows. (coughs) Jesus alone knows. Peter's pride was broken. And restoration, believing again, because that's what restoration is. Believing again begins here. And do you remember this morning we saw that to believe is to be single-minded in accepting the truth about Jesus, that he is God? Only Jesus himself can restore that belief again. And that's what he comes to do in our lives, even tonight. Now, Peter understood this later in his life. His writings later in his letters are full of emotion that reflect his experience. In chapter 5, verse 10 of his first letter, he writes, to people who were struggling and suffering because of their faith, When the persecution came, he writes to them and he says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, listen, restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. You hear Peter speaking to, writing to people who are struggling the way he had at one point in his life. And he's saying, this God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. How does Peter know that? How can he say that with confidence to other people who are struggling? Because that's what Jesus did for him. Do you see that? Jesus restored them. He confirmed them. He strengthened them. And he established them. And therefore, Peter was then able to encourage others in a similar way. And the final element of restoration is resilience. My how we need resilience today. The first element of resilience is consistency. Do you notice that in the text, verses 15 to 17? Do you notice that the road to recovery requires resilience? 
You will know if a person has truly been restored and recovered from denial and failure by their consistent approach in doing what? In serving the people of God. Rather than feeding their own ego. Do you notice what Jesus says to Peter three times? Feed, tend, feed. These aren't words of a superstar. These aren't the tasks of a, an I'm great individual, are they? They're the tasks of a servant. They're the tasks of a minister of the gospel, of someone who gives their lives for others. And that is the focus of Jesus' instruction to Peter here. For every profession of love for Jesus, Jesus says, prove it by serving my people. Feed them with my word just as I fed you. Look after them, tend them, shepherd them, serve them. From now on, Peter, I'm looking for a servant. I'm not looking for a superstar. Do you see? I'm not looking for the greatest. I'm looking for the least. I'm looking for someone who will serve my people. And so people who have been caught up in failure and leaders who have been caught up in failure need to recognize that the place to begin restoration is in humble service to the people of God, not becoming a superstar again, but starting at the bottom end and feeding people, giving their lives to people, showing self-sacrifice, a humble approach. Not a proud one, do you see? No more mercurial extremes from Peter. No, no one minute dying for Christ, the next minute denying him. Just a consistent service for my people. Just serve folk. Look after them. Look after other people, Peter. Never mind your own ego. Be a humble shepherd. No more and no less. And then the last element of his restoration involved commitment. And we have that in verses 18 and 19. Because recovery and restoration not only require consistency, it requires commitment. In verse 18, Jesus effectively tells Peter that he'll live to be an old age when he will die a martyr's death. That is what restoration will mean for Peter. It will mean Peter waking every day from here on in his life and wondering if today will be the day that the knock will come at the door when they're coming to take him away. So he's been told by Jesus that day will come one day. So for the rest of his life, can you imagine? He'd never forget those words. I wonder if it's today. I, I know what's going to happen to me. I wonder if it's today. I wonder if, it's to I wonder if the knock will come today. And Peter also knew what the phrase stretch out your hands meant. Because it was a shortcut phrase for crucifixion itself. And, and John tells us that Jesus said that to tell Peter and to inform him about the kind of death he would die. And it's almost certain by the time, as we saw this morning, that John wrote this gospel, it's about AD 70. It's almost certain by that time that Peter had died because John lived to be an old man in exile but notice the reason that Jesus had told Peter in advance about his death 
Do you notice that there? In verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Jesus had told Peter about his death so that Peter might be ready to glorify God when the time came for him to die. He was being given a second chance to glorify God in his life. But how many chances would he get to glorify God in his death? One. We only die one time. And if we're going to glorify God in our death, we had better get it right first time. We had better die well. My mum died six weeks ago. She was at home, surrounded by her husband, my brother, my sister and myself. She was barely conscious. She was peaceful. She was in no pain. We sang a verse of the hymn we're going to sing to close with tonight. When peace like a river attendeth my way. We sang that first verse in chorus with her. And then we sang the Lord's my shepherd. The Stuart Town End version. Although mum was 81, she was quite trendy. And then I prayed. And as I prayed, she passed into heaven. We prayed her into heaven. Now, friends, I understand not everyone will have that kind of experience. But if I said to you, that's dying well as a Christian believer, you know what I mean by that. That's how to die well. To make it through to the end. And to be prayed home to heaven. We only get one opportunity to die well. We, we may not find ourselves in congenial circumstances such as mum did by the grace of God. But in our hearts and in our lives and in our attitude... And in the way we, we, we live to that point where the, the, the last day has come, we have an opportunity to die well. But we'll only die well if we've lived well. And Peter was given this opportunity to, to live well again and then to glorify God in his death. So let me ask you, how are you going to glorify God in your death? It's a bit morbid for a Sunday night in April, isn't it? But it's inevitable for all of us. And we only get one chance at that. We've got lots of other chances in life if we fail. But if we fail to glorify God in our death, we won't get another opportunity. Let me leave that challenge with you. What would glorifying God in your death look like for you? <clears throat> what would it mean to die well as a Christian? We're not left to make it up, of course. Hebrews 11 gives us a bit of a clue. Listen. All these people were living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. 
People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There is dying well. And dying well, glorifying God in your death, is the last act of worship you'll ever carry out as a Christian believer. So believing, as John wants us to, as a result of reading his gospel, believing in Jesus Christ means believing in him right to the very end. And so as we finish this evening, as we conclude our reflections on the last two chapters of John's gospel, where does it leave us? Having received what could only have been a bit of a bombshell about his own future, Peter does what all of us do. What about him? Aye, that's fine for me, but what about him? How does this word from the Lord to me apply to him or her? How human that is. Can you relate to that? I, I, I can relate to that. I sometimes sit where you sit and listen to people where I am and think, I know uh, that it's a pity that person's no here tonight. That would have been a good word for them. You ever thought like that? We look for the application in the lives of others and we fail to hear the application of God's word in our own life. The application of the word of the Lord in Peter's life was, Never you mind about anybody else, Peter. You follow me. Look after yourself, son. For every one of us today, the call of Christ is, you follow me. Don't you be worried about those other folk. Just you follow me. Look after them. Feed them. Tend them. Serve them. And follow me. And don't just follow me today and tomorrow and till next Sunday. But follow me all of your life. Follow me until your last day. And for every one of us today, the call of Christ is follow me. The evidence you see of believing in Jesus is following Jesus. The Christian life has been described as a long obedience in one direction. May the Lord help all of us tonight to walk in obedience in one direction until that final day. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we humble ourselves under your word this evening, we ask that you will speak to our hearts at the point where we need to hear you. We ask that you will challenge our unbelief, that you will restore our failures and our fallen lives into lives that will gladly obey you and serve you for all of our days. We pray that you will help us to keep an eye on the prize ahead, that you will help us to follow you all of our lives 
with a long obedience in one direction, that direction being your glory, the honour of your name, and the extension of your great kingdom. And so we thank you for our time together tonight, and we ask for your blessing on your word in our lives now as we consider it. In Jesus' name, amen.